0: Thank you for joining us on Inside EMS. Now the always entertaining Chris Sabolero and the Ted Nugent of EMS Kelly Grayson.
1: Well it's time once again for the world famous Inside EMS. I want to thank everybody for joining us. This is your host Chris Sabolero and with me I got things to talk about with him so let's bring him in here really quick. He is the man of the hour. Too sweet to be sour. The ladies know he's the man with the power, Kelly Grayson. Kelly, how are you? I'm
2: fine, man. I'm finer than frog hair right now.
1: Finer than frog hair, I like finer that.
2: Finer than frog hair. Have you
1: ever seen frog hair, Chris? I've not, man. Is that like it's because it's think... so fine? How about it's that?
2: Because it's so fine. I just I'm up here in, in beautiful Lake Placid, New York, uh, staring out on my my hotel room deck over Mirror Lake, and if you listen real close, my dogs are really, really barking. <laughs> I just. uh I just uh, made it to the summit of Whiteface Mountain, which uh, you can drive all but the last 300 feet. But the last 300 feet are pretty much 45 degrees, and for a, a fat boy that's almost 5,000 feet above sea level, uh, <laughs> it was a workout,
1: man. Well, that's good, man. That's good. Hey, so I got a, I got a thing that I need to talk about with you before we get yeah. this show going. So, you know, you're up there in Lake Placid, and of mm-hmm. course, you're doing your world famous Kelly Grayson. Uh, educator tour, let's call it that. Yeah, with the wonderful
2: folks from the initial assessment conference up here in Lake Placid. People need to come to this conference. It is
1: awesome. Now, the other day, I happened to run across something on Facebook that was quite concerning that I need your help with. So in your role as a premier educator in the United States, EMS educator, I actually saw where you allowed a student to nasally trumpet you and uh, I got to tell you, I was pretty impressed.
2: Yeah, yeah. That's, uh, that's uh, the only problem with that. With that video was is the only nasal trumpet they had that uh, that was um, acceptable to me. It was also about an inch and a half too long. So when she got it close to being all fully inserted, it started stimulating my gag reflex. I had to stop and tell her, "Okay, that's that's
1: deep enough." Yeah, I mean, I saw that as well, and uh, I was going to say to you, how did you figure out that you can do that? But uh, I got to tell you, man, giving up your body for the career field, uh, that was pretty impressive. I mean, you take the the premier educator thing a little bit seriously, don't you?
2: (laughs) i just i'm ne- it never ceases to amaze me how many people have been in ems for a while and never put in a nasal airway and i think it's a tremendously underutilized underappreciated airway adjunct and no one's ever put one in so i uh, i when i do an airway lecture i'll let someone put a nasal trumpet in me but uh i'm refining the 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 uh, technique. I think next year it's going to be some benzocaine spray and some lidocaine jelly involved instead of instead of just straight KY.
1: Because it's painful. You know, I got to tell you. So when I was when I was uh, hanging out with one of my paramedic friends, you know, we were talking to an EMT about intubation, mm-hmm. and uh, the this other paramedic said, "Well, let me show you." And he leaned back and he took a laryngoscope blade and he and he moved his own tongue to visualize so the EMT can visualize his airway. And I got to tell you, man, I gave him so much guff. First off, I wanted to know how he can do that. That was the first thing, but that that was pretty darn impressive. But uh, for you to give up your body to uh, the EMS education, I got to tell you, Kelly Grayson, you are my hero this week. Well, well, thank you, man. I'm, I'm flattered. And dang dang well you should be, but, uh, you know, so Kelly, I think, you know, this is really kind of a, a milestone for us, and, you know, every, every time we uh, do the show, we try to develop, uh, you know, different ways to bring education. Now, last week, uh, we talked about uh, autism, and mm-hmm. uh, it explained a lot of things about you and how you run the show, so I have a new uh, understanding of uh, why you do some of the things you do, but anyway, um, <laughs> we went ahead and uh, made some contact. And I'm going to kick it to you for the introductions and uh, let's get this thing a rolling.
2: Yeah, we're, we're glad to welcome a uh, special guest to the guest table uh, this week. This is Kimberly Stanford from, I won't even try to pronounce the city, uh, in Pennsylvania. But Kim <laughs> is a uh, supervisor of a family partnership support program at Glade Run Lutheran Services. Uh, she's a mental health professional and mother of a son with Asperger's syndrome. And she has developed a uh, training program for for EMS providers in dealing with, with patients on uh, on the Autism Spectrum. Kim, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you, Kelly, very much. It's good to see uh, or hear uh, both you and Chris. Uh, the
2: Wait, thing it's, and that, it's better that- to hear us than see us, trust me. <laughs> we'll speak. Oh. He
1: should speak for himself. But, uh, you know, Kim, it's really great. <laughs> and, uh, you know, last week we, we read the news and we heard about what you did. And, you know, it's one of the things that Kelly and I talked about in the show that this was something that was really, really needed. But before we you know, before we get into the specifics, why don't you just tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, and uh, then we'll kind of go from there.
0: Sure. Um, that that town that he had a hard time, uh, Kelly, that you didn't even try to pronounce, um, Quitter, uh, is Zillah, PA, <laughs> and that is actually where Glade Run is located, where I work. If um, uh, I actually, I live, I live in Beaver, PA, which is uh, Central Beaver County. We are right outside of Pittsburgh um, for anyone who may have a better understanding of where we're at. Um, but my education, uh, my bachelor's is in education itself. Uh, I'm taught for a little bit, uh, went back to school and, um, became, uh, you know, got my master's in clinical mental health and have been in the field of mental health for 15 plus years. Uh, I have held positions, um, you know, as a crisis clinician uh, within UPMC, they have a Western uh, psychiatric uh, hospital here near Pittsburgh, um, I'm also a clinical supervisor. I was at Glade Run here for three years prior to switching into this position as the supervisor of family partnership. So I kind of have a unique um, role of being able to still hold uh, therapy pieces here in our RTF or our residential treatment facility and still being able to do amazing things like this in um, helping families, um, specifically in the ASD community. Um, you know, right now. So I, I do still specialize in treating individuals and families with ASD and some trauma recovery as well. Um, but that yeah. that was that was the professional side. Yeah. Um, I, am a, I am a mother. The emotional involvement comes from, you know, having a 17-year-old with Asperger's um, and also being the wife of a first responder. My husband has been uh, in the field of EMS for close to 20 years. Um, you know, so I have emotional investment on both sides of that. So I, I consider myself by extension, a member of the EMS family.
2: <laughs> well, that's you are, um, yeah. you are certainly well qualified for uh, for educating sure. our fellow EMS providers about uh, dealing with with children along the autism spectrum disorder. So,
1: um, I'm looking oh. forward to to this conversation. Sure. So Kim, Grateful to be here. Thank you. Oh, it's our pleasure and a, and a great honor to have you here. So, so, Kim, let me go ahead and kick the first question off to you. So maybe you just give a little bit of background as to how we got to, to have you on the show and uh, what it is you developed for the folks out there in the EMS career field.
0: Sure. Um, as I mentioned, in, in September of this year, I transferred positions and I took this uh, position as the Supervisor of Family Partnership and had Um, just numerous opportunities to really work and and help families um, advocate, support, educate. Um, Specifically, of course, near and dear to my heart would be those uh, families in the ASD community. So I was uh, with my husband. We were eating dinner with our son, and the conversation just came up of, um, you know, what if our son had been involved in a car accident? He's 17 now. Some of his friends are driving. Would he be able to even communicate what was injured? He doesn't register pain the same way. Um, that started the conversation and um, my husband was able to say that, in, you know, in the field of EMS, there's really not a lot of training for them right now or um, any way to gather tools and, you know, intervention strategies to work with patients with ASD. Um, so I kind of took that back to work here and, and sat at my desk and thought that's, you know, that's not okay. We need to really get something in place um, for our kids and, and our young adults and specifically with, you know, Brandon, my son, with him in mind. That population, um, you know, they're verbal. They may not necessarily disclose that they have an autism spectrum diagnosis, but they're certainly not acting the same, um, you know, and how that is misread as, um, you know, being under the influence, being oppositional, being psychotic, different different mistakes that happen whenever <laughs> someone's not a- able to communicate that. Um, and, and just the very nature of emergencies themselves, you know, kids with... AFDs, they, they need routine. They need structure and emergencies break routine. So by definition, you guys are set up to fail right off of that with, oh, yeah. um, with these, with these guys. So it was just a matter of sitting down and trying to figure out how do I develop a training? Uh, how do I take it out to EMS and first responders? Um, and then the kit just came halfway through that where, um, you know, we were talking about the sensory implications with that the noises, the smells, the, the touches, the the sounds, all of those things, you know, that, that impact and overwhelm an individual with ASD. Um, there's really not tools on the trucks to, to help with that. Um, so I went down to Medic Rescue where my husband works and, um, you know, there's a the largest provider of, of services in, in Beaver County that handle over 75,000 calls a year. Uh, and I just got in a truck and I sat in the back and I, I tried to see what they would see and hear what they would hear and um, Tried to space is, you know priority on those <laughs> um, you don't have much mm-hmm. back there and I knew I couldn't take that much space it was just a matter of trying to get things together that would be helpful with communication and with sensory needs and go from there um, and it's just really taken off so I'm overwhelmed by the response the support Um I've had uh, one training down so far here in Beaver County and That was the 30 um, EMS first responders. I've got another one scheduled next month for 60, including some uh, fire departments. Um, So it's really starting to to grow, and I'm so grateful and humbled by that that I can't wait to see where it goes. The need is definitely there.
1: Kim, let me ask you this question. You've said it a couple times, and for the folks that don't know, what does ASD stand for?
0: ASD stands for Autism Spectrum Disorder. Um, and we're kind of at a tricky spot this day and age. We went from, um, in the field of mental health, our our diagnostic bible, if, if you will, um, is the the DSM. And mm-hmm. um, we went from the DSM the DSM four tr, which which had different disorders falling under the autism umbrella, to the new DSM five, which virtually did away with the term Aspergers and um, ranks spectrum disorders by level one, two, and three with, you know, specifiers in there. So um, when I say ASD, I'm just simplifying autism spectrum disorder in that they all fall somewhere on that spectrum. High functioning would be, you know, uh, high functioning autism, Asperger's, um, all the way to the more affected, um, which someone would traditionally refer to as the nonverbal or um, the ones that need extended care or That type of placement. So it's a wide spectrum. No one is the same. Uh, They don't present the same. Uh, You you may even get a kid on two different calls, same child, um, and who responds entirely two different ways to you. So it just it depends. There is no uh, no set rules with dealing with uh, an individual with ASD. So
2: Kim. Considering that, that uh, they're all individuals and they all react uh, in different ways, um, I don't know mm-hmm. if you can, you can tell us which would be the biggest challenge. But in your mind, what, what's probably the, the biggest difficulty uh, or the biggest challenge for EMS providers dealing with, with kids along the autism spectrum disorder? Is it, is it the sensory processing stuff or is it the communications challenges?
0: Uh, I would or say is it, or is it interruption
2: a... of their routine, you know? And
0: <laughs> all of it. <laughs> um you know, I, I would say that depending on, on the patient, um, you can have those individu you know, those patients that are more affected that are not able to speak, mm-hmm. um, which is a communication issue. But at the same time, you can have someone as high functioning as our son who he's perfectly Verbal, you would not know that he's on the spectrum anywhere, but as far as being able to communicate what he's feeling or thinking or registering pain, that does not come easy for him. He needs time. Mm-hmm. Um, the very nature of an emergency, you know, crisis, there is no time. <laughs> um, and there's protocol that, that you guys follow. You know, in this the situation, we do A, B, and C. That's protocol. Um, but when you've got a kid or, or a young adult or an adult with, an, with autism, that's just not going to work. Um, So it's definitely a combination, I think, of how the whole sensory piece, the communication piece, um, and, you know, the behavioral aspect of that as well. Because if there's communication problems, then they're going to act that out through behavior and, um, you know, all behavior is communication. And that's what I really try to key them in um, to pay attention to, especially on a call where you don't know if that patient has, you know, is diagnosed. Uh, unless they tell you that, then your only other indicator is their behaviors. So it's really trying to key into what what the the factors are to look for and how to assess and how to minimize the likelihood that um, you know there'll be a meltdown or um, aggressive
2: behaviors, you know those sorts of things.
0: But I think it, it's just a different a combination of all all of it.
2: So we, we can't really focus on just one aspect of it. We, we have to have all the tools in the toolbox and be able to, to, uh, to deal with, with all three of those challenges. Um, something just, something just struck me and, and I don't know if there, if it will be helpful or not, or even if there's a way to do this. But for the kids with communications issues, would something as simple as, as texting answers, uh, uh, Texting uh, responses to questions. Could you hand them a tablet or your smartphone or something, and ask them questions, and they can communicate that way?
0: Sure, you you would be very brave um, to do that in in the event that you know there's there's a frustrating individual. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. Uh, You could do that. Um, You could utilize any sort of uh, device like that. If if it's a child or a young adult that um, is is awake and able to to be a part of the assessment process. They might have that with them already. Um, a caregiver may have that with them. But um, I've even gone so far as to to say, have a pen and paper handy. Um, in the kits that we, you know, we are developing for the sensory kits, there's a communication board in there for pain assessment. And um, it's very visual. There's a program called PEX, which is the picture exchange communication uh, software or system that um, a lot of families with, see children, specifically ones that are nonverbal or have communication difficulties, they're, they're pretty familiar with mm-hmm. that. Um, and I just use the front and back um, of maybe two, three pages to get some basic, you know, ways to communicate on there. But if you don't have any of that, you can go to mm-hmm. good old-fashioned pen and paper. Um, you know, different it's yes and no questions yeah. don't usually work or open-ended questions, you All know, right. they're they're harder. Right. So, yeah, that would work if you got those hard cases on there.
2: <laughs> do you know if there's a do you know if there's a a, a mobile or or smartphone app for PECS? There are lots
0: up. of apps. Yes, there are lots okay. of apps. Um not for PECS itself, I don't believe, but there are many apps um, on both uh, iPhones and Android type phones in their markets there are apps for autism and communication and there are going to be ones that are very minimal, they're free all the way up to You know, ones that you can pay $100 for that are pretty in-depth for iPads and things like that. But they're out there, absolutely.
1: Okay. i got to tell you, Kim, I mean, there's just so many questions that are going through my mind that I don't know really where to start from. But I think, you know, as, as we begin this, how can a provider, I think my first question will be, how can a provider make the determination that maybe, you know, this patient who's not communicating or, the patient that's acting erratically, or the patient that, uh, h- how do we make the determination that, hey, may- maybe this is Asperger's syndrome, or maybe this is an ASD that we need to think about uh, getting outside the box or using this toolkit that you developed? I mean, how do we know? How do we figure it out?
0: Well, um, it, it comes with practice, one one way to do that. I mean, as, as I said, there are ways. for those of us who've been in this field for a long time, you know, we can sit. At the food court of the mall, and really try to uh, pick out those individuals that have um, spectrum-like behaviors or traits. That doesn't even mean necessarily that they have the diagnosis. Um, I've met more people in the last year that that should be diagnosed that had no idea, and that's <laughs> you know that's not that's not the uh, first responders' responsibility to diagnose. But there are things to look for, um, you know, especially with the higher functioning kiddos, you know, that fall or young adults that fall in the uh, Asperger's realm. Um, there maybe odd speech patterns or, um, a reluctancy to answer. Oftentimes they're thought of as oppositional. Um, a lot of, um, well, I don't need to do that right now. I do it this way, or I don't, I don't do that on, on this day. I go here on that day. I can't go with you right now. Um, I don't want to put that on and I don't have to, and you can't make me. And those oppositional behaviors that really come out of, you know, underlying anxiety fear that, um, you know, you're breaking routine. You're not part of their normal schedule. They may be in pain. They may have a caregiver in pain. Um, so it's hard to, to tell, but there's, you know, those odd speech patterns, some resistance there. Um, they may have sensory issues where, um, you know, they, they leer back from the noises that go through the radios or the vel- Velcro is one thing that can set off some of our kids. Mm. Um, eye contact may be, uh, and that's usually what gets our older ones in trouble that don't disclose when law enforcement um, comes to intervene, you know, the, the shifty eye contact that, you know, to a police officer, that seems like you're you're hiding something, you're suspicious. Um, so they immediately get on the defense when that person may be on the spectrum, they just have a difficulty maintaining eye contact. Um, a lack of danger awareness is common. Um, they're not thinking about, you know, the situation that they're in the middle of an intersection and there's a car accident and fuel's running around. All they want to get to is seven o'clock, you know, I have a video game battle I need to get to, you need to get out of my way. Um, you know, there's, there's a, either a high sensitivity or, um, uh, even on the flip side with pain, sometimes some of our kids don't register pain at all the way that you or I would, my son can go out in his bare feet in February in the snow and it does not bother him. Um, so those things kind of, that this kid isn't quite something is be quite right. Um, you know, maybe insistence on things being their way. Um, issues with you need to close that cupboard door, you know, that all those cords and monitors are hanging out, just shut it, just, you know, trying to mess with your stuff to organize it. Um, you know, those kinds of things. And you'll usually start to get an idea when you seem to be handling things your typical way. And this person is not responding as they should, or you would typically see, and then you're like, what's going on? You know, this person is giving me a battle here and I don't understand. Um, that may be, the rigid thought processes and things that they experience that are just really hard for them in that moment to, to be flexible, to compromise. Um, And, and most of the time it's not because they're, you know, trying to give you a hard time. They're just having
2: a hard time for the kids displaying, you know, oppositional type behaviors, that's that's a recipe right. for disaster with uh, a lot oh, of public safety <laughs> people. Because you may not have noticed this, but there's a whole lot of type A people in in public I, safety I, and EMS. You know, we, we kind of like I things our way up, and it's our scene.
0: <laughs> I may have picked up on that, yes. Um, yeah, the, and and I, as a fellow type A person, I can respect that and appreciate that. Um, but, uh, you know, usually – in those situations, even here in the RTF, when you've got a staff member who's, you know, really, yeah. they're new, they're coming in, um, we like to stand back and say, you tell me how this goes, because <laughs> uh, it, it usually doesn't go well, um, because you've got your own agenda, and it's really uh, a number of factors that set up the perfect storm, you know, for as far as the person with, with autism and also the professional that's working with them, because, you know, in many respects, they're, they're under pressure, um, this, this patient needs to do what I tell them to do. I'm the person in authority here, um, you know. but at the same time, it's, it's their it's the patient's crisis. It's not mm-hmm. the professional's crisis. It's not a reflection on their ability to do their job. Um, it's really just that person having a hard time in the moment and needing some patience and understanding if, if the situation allows for that.
2: So, so let me, Chris, I'm going to step on you a little bit because uh, uh, my, my mind is like a frog in a blender. I, if I don't get this out <laughs> now, I'll, I'll forget it. Um, so, Kim, on those situations where de-escalation and, and and all the attempts to diffuse a situation fail, uh, what right. – what agents would you recommend that we use or, or not use? Um, would, would sedation be, uh, for the child who's having a meltdown uh, and, and can't, I mean, uh, we, we've, we've got things like Versed and, and, and yeah. associated anesthetics like ketamine is, are there some that we need to stay away from or do, or is that a, a last resort that's, never do it kind of thing or
1: what?
0: They And, and that's kind of a twofold, um, Response, if, if I can do that answer that way, because we do have, um, you know, and we talk about intervention strategies. If you, you're trying to approach things in a way that, um, you're offering more time to process questions and giving distractors if they start to escalate and giving them choices where they're able to, do you want me to put the blood pressure cup on now or, or hook this, you know, giving them some sense of power where they feel helpless? Um, if those still aren't working, we have other intervention strategies that we talk about. Um, you know, all the way from verbal de escalation to, um, you know, using restraints or physical interventions as a last resort. But there's also a section, um, where I talk about medication implications. Uh, just because of the fact that, you know, a lot of our, my son included, and I learned that the hard way, um, a lot of individuals with autism don't respond to typical medications the same way. They have adverse reactions. Really? Um, they have paradoxical reactions. They, um, yes, all the, the, you know, they can have dystonic reactions and, and different things depending on the medication. And I don't know, I wish there was an explanation uh, for why that is, but they seem to, and it's not every every individual, of course, on the autism spectrum, but there is a high percentage of likelihood that your, your quote, typical statistics of someone having an adverse reaction to a medication, it just seems higher in this population. And I, again, I don't know why, um, but there are, you got to be careful for the medications and, um, you know, I do talk about that a little bit, but I do everything from treatment strategies, you know, starting with simple distractors and demonstration and praise techniques where you um, try it out on someone else or a caregiver to try to help them relax a little more because anxiety is really a killer to you in, in your assessment and treatment, um, you know, all the way up to offering choices and high P, low P momentum is something that I talk about where you ask them something simple that they're likely to do, like, here, you know, hold this balloon or, you know, whatever, which I know you don't have it usually, but, um, you know, all the way up to, okay, now open up and let me see what's in your mouth or, you know, if they're bleeding because we get a lot of, um, you know, when they Injurious have a meltdown, behavior. you'll get, yeah. right, the self-injurious behavior goes up because um, they just, they need to create that sensory output to drown the input yes. and um, they'll do a lot of stimming behaviors and, you know, I've had a lot of uh, EMS come up to me and say, "What do you do in the event, you know, when they're simming in the back of your truck?" And do you ignore that? Do you, you know, no, don't ever I let with them that. Smell, unless you know, it. that's, that's certain.
2: mechanism.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. And and I have I show a couple of video clips where there's a young lady with autism that says, um, in her own words, "We create output to drown out the input um, mm-hmm. because they don't have that filter that you or I would have." Just kind of, you know, you're sitting there talking on the phone, but the furnace is on and the copier is running, we drown that all out naturally and they're not able to do that. They hear everything, they take in everything, um, and it gets overwhelming and it's terrifying. So that's you know, the student behaviors is just how they cope with the anxiety, how they drown out some of that sensory overload. Um and and I would always say don't intervene with that unless it's absolutely necessary. Um sometimes they need to take their their Pikachu or their Buzz Lightyear with them, um, on a call and in a lot of medics are, you know, I need that out of my way. I need to be able to assess and unless it's absolutely necessary, your Buzz Lightyear will be your best friend, leave it alone, um, you know, in that kind of a situation. But, um, yeah, there's lots of, of areas to look at between medications. We would always say it's, you know, restraint medication is, is the last resort, um, if possible, but I know that safety of all involved is, is first and foremost. Um, and you can't always, you know, predict who's going to de-escalate well and successfully and who's just not. You know, there's just no would, way to, no magic formula.
2: If, if, uh, if, that, if that step has been necessary in the past, the parents would probably have a good idea of
1: what meds are no-goes and what meds are right. no Okay. Absolutely, yes. So you know, Kim, really, what we've talked about so far has been so eye-opening, and you know, on this show, I've had to use de-escalation techniques with Kelly quite a bit, (laughs) and uh, it's really—I stem with Cheetos and beer. That's right, he does. So it's really, really, really—I mean, it gets in the way. But but let me ask you this: I mean, and and really, I got to say, even from the outset, even before we start talking about your program, your tool. Uh, we probably need to have you come back on so we could talk about some more characteristics, so we could talk about... But but before we get too far into it, maybe you can share with us a little bit about the program and the tool that you developed uh, that's available for EMS providers to help with this special population.
0: Sure. Um, the training that I initially started with um, had different sections set up to it. Um, I really wanted to, to keep the goal of... You know, the mission of teaching EMS how to effectively interact with uh, patients with ASD, how to recognize, um, treat it, equip them with some sort of tool to communicate and reduce and eliminate unsafe behaviors. Um, I really, with, you know, having my husband and my son in mind, wanted to maintain safety of of all people involved, you know, in these calls. But, you know, in the last decade, we were looking at a 78% increase in um, autism diagnosis. That's, you know, the rate is now one in 68. Children born in the U.S. will fall somewhere on the autism spectrum. It's five times higher in boys than it is in girls. So we are facing, um, you know, in these next 10, 20 years, an overwhelming need for um, education around how to how to interact with these children and these adults because you know they have a right to to be treated and and with respect and understanding. But um, it's hard. It is so hard when there's just there's such a need and and the rate is growing so fast, but, um, each section has, you know, I start with, um, you know, what is autism? And it's a, a brief, I don't spend too much time on that because it, it's not necessary to, to be able to diagnose. It's just, you need to know what to look for and, mm-hmm. um, you know, why, you know, it's a neurobiological disorder and how that affects their behavior. Um, I also go into another section that talks about how autism impacts you as a first responder. Um, the type of calls you will most likely find an individual with ASDN, how to recognize it, um, the difference, you know, between a meltdown and a tantrum, because that's that's where you get those type A's that are being very insistent on this patient will do what I tell him to do. Um, and that doesn't, you know, that doesn't work. Um, intervention strategies I also talk about. And those range, like I said, from simple all the way up to, okay, you're, you're about to explode here. This, this individual is about to have a meltdown. Um, and, you know, what to do in that that respect, um, how to assess your ASD patient, um, strategies if it's not going well, <laughs> uh, medication considerations, um, and in Bukino, as I mentioned earlier. Um, and I also end with caregiver emergencies because that's something that we see here in Beaver County, Allegheny County, Butler County. Um, we're getting a, a higher percentage of calls where grandma is, is the, the patient, but grandma has a, a 20-year-old son with autism that she's raising and what do you absolutely and you can't leave them there. Um, you know, what do you do in that situation where, you know, grandma's the patient and you you need to do something with Johnny, uh, how to keep him calm, how to transport, how to do all of that. That's something that we talked about as well. Um, but the sensor kit came about just trying to minimize some of those, uh, environmental factors that add to the, the stress and the, sensory overload on an emergency call. So, you know, I included um, noise-canceling headphones for, you know, they expand from kid all the way up to adult size. Um, some sensory toys. There are, you know, they, they like vibrations, So there are things in there that help with that. There are lights. Um, there are stress balls. There are weighted lap pads or activity pads. When they're sitting there, there's um, activities for them to do. Um, oh, my goodness. I have a number of things that are in there, including the uh, communication boards to help with assessment, basic questions. Um, and it just, it kept coming, you know, once you start, it's yeah. like, well, wait a minute, we need to add this or we can't forget this. Um, so I'm, I'm going to add a section. Um, I've been doing a lot of research on self-injury and, and the fact that that's a high percentage of number of calls that, you know, when you see an escalation in, in self-injurious behavior, um, and how they're showing that just a simple, you know, average pain medication, um, you know, can, can reduce that and avoid the heavy psychotropic meds. But that's very controversial. There's a lot of, well, wait a minute. We can't pass out pain meds to everybody that, and you know, you know how that goes, but, um, it's ever evolving, but that's kind of the basis of, of what I wanted to start with. So if
2: a if an there. agency if an agency uh, spotted this as a, a major hole in their education and wanted to bring your program uh, to their people, how would they how would they get in touch with you and, and who would uh, who would be qualified to teach it? Would your, their clinical educ is it suited for their clinical educators to do, or does it need to be delivered by a health a mental health professional?
0: Well, um, I will be honest in saying that you know I, I was careful how in the development um, of the material that I had here, and I even pulled in our uh, our medical director uh, as well when I did the medications piece just so that, you know, I didn't want to operate outside of my scope of practice mm-hmm. either. But um, as far as the training goes, I'm, I'm not sending. I've had some requests for the, the PowerPoint and the materials to be sent, and I'm not at liberty to do that. Um, but I am more than willing to talk about tailoring the needs of whatever agency mm-hmm. um, or organization that would like it, that they can reach me at, um, do you want me to just pass to give my email address?
2: or? Yeah, just just give us your email address. Sure. If, if, if someone needs Absolutely. the training, how can they reach out yes. to you and get a hold of you?
0: They can they can contact me at Kstanford, that's K-S-T-A-N-F-O-R-D, at gladerun.org, and that is all one word, gladerun.org org. Or they can give me a call at my office at 724 452 4453, and my extension is 1205.
1: Awesome. So, Kim, just a little bit more yeah. about the program. I mean, how long is it? is it? Is it an eight hour course? Is it a four? I mean, how, no. how, how does it take to go through this? It's,
0: right now, it is a three hour training. Um, and it is approved through DMSI uh, for three hours of ComEd. Um, I, there's a break in between, we pretty much go nonstop. It's a lot of material to try to cover, um, you know, in a, sh- what I think is a short period of time, but it's been, uh, I've been able to cut it down a little bit for different, um, service There's a different people that've reached out to me saying, can you condense this? Um, I, I can't, if you're asking for the con ed credit, <laughs> um, but if you're just asking for, uh, you know, education on, on the training itself. I've had a lot of training directors reach out to me and want uh, to communicate with that. You know, I can definitely work with them. Um, but, um, yeah, three hours training, three hours of continuing education certification, uh, and I am waiting on a large grant to see if I'm even going to be awarded it. Uh, there was an application for a, a grant to develop the kits. Um, my hope was to provide them at no cost to Medic rescue trucks just because of their cooperation and support in getting this started, um, and then somehow offer them or um, the ability to purchase them through some of the other service providers here in our area and whoever's listening.
2: <laughs> awesome. Well, yeah. Kim, Chris yeah. and I would like to thank you very much for being on the show. And, and Chris, you have thank anything you. else
1: for her? Man, I got tons of stuff, but I don't know that we can. You know, yeah, get to we, it, we, this is it. We got another show out of this. So Kim promised us <laughs> that wonderful. We'll, we could schedule some more time and come back. I mean, there's just so many ways that I think that we can continue to move on and and kind of identify symptoms—not uh, symptoms, but characteristics—and you know, because I just see so many things. I mean, especially when you talk about your boy, you know, being 17 years old. One of the things that I was running through my mind is, you know, especially in the days with all these you know, designer drugs that are going on. How do we know that it's a, you know, a, a, a autism and it's not a, an overdose or not a, a, you know, indulgement of some type of drug that we have to deal with. And I mean, I, I just right. don't know these things. And I think that a lot of us out there don't know. So I'm going to shut up now and uh, I'm going to let Kelly do his <laughs> thing, but promise us you'll come back so we can chat again.
0: I promise.
1: And
2: Thanks for, thanks for coming uh, this week, Kim, and, and we, we look forward to having you back. And for myself and Thank co-host Chris Ceballero, thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS. You guys rate us on iTunes, email us your questions, concerns, comments about autism spectrum disorders at the show at EMS1.com. And for myself, Chris Ceballero and our guest, Kimberly Stanford, thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you guys next week.